Well, welcome to another online service. Chris here. We are so glad to be with you. Uh, so let's go ahead and enter into a wonderful time of worship.
in the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of light, forever under your dominion, you're the king of my life, you're the king of my life, you reign above it all, you reign God, you poured out your life just to give us new life. Now from the lips of the forgiven, here in anthem arise, cause Jesus, you're Let all the heaven and the earth 
Thank you so much for being a part of our worship service and diving into worship with us. Well, man, as a church family, one of the things that we love to do for you is pray. And so if there's any way we can be a resource for you, we'd love to pray over any of your concerns. You can text us at 97,000, any of your prayer requests, and we'd be honored to pray for you. Well, um, if you would be interested in learning more about the ministries that we have at ABF, please go ahead and check out our website. We've got things for youth. We've got things for senior adults and everywhere in between. So go to our website and check out all the resources that we have for you. Well, the only way that we can continue making videos like this in our ministry on Sunday mornings and throughout the week is through uh, your generous donations. So if you would love to give to us, we'd uh, appreciate it if you just go on our website and hit the Give tab and uh, support our ministries. That would be a huge blessing to us at ABF. Well, before we jump into our message, I'd love to just offer a prayer to everyone here online listening. Father God, we love you so much, and we are grateful for your presence in our lives, and you are at work in our lives. No matter where we're at, God, you are there, and we acknowledge that. So Lord, as we come to hear your word, God, would your truth resonate in our hearts, souls, and minds. God, speak to us. May your Holy Spirit do a work in us. Uh, prepare us for what you want to teach us. We love you. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas to you and your family. I hope you guys have had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, I know we have had one. Uh, it's been great and it's not over. Uh, we are very tired, very exhausting, uh, exhausted, but uh, we're heading to Chicago on Tuesday. So you'll be praying for that. So imagine me and my wife getting all four kids through security and all that to Chicago. It's going to be great. It's just going to be tiring. And I don't know about you, but December comes and goes so fast. So we're really, we're really trying to enjoy every single moment of it. Uh, so very excited though. Um, as you know, we've been in this series in the book of Isaiah, walking through the Christmas story, uh, being told through detailed and specific prophecies, uh, prophecies that were hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, prophecies that are so detailed and specific that no one, no one could have fulfilled them on their own. Uh, Pastor Scott stated last week that uh, there's not a single person that's ever lived that could have predicted their own birth, the way of birth, uh, the way their uh, earthly mom got to the town where he was born, uh, the gifts that people would bring to the birth, uh, and the events that would be leading to the cross, to the person's own death. Uh, I know that it seems a little unusual uh, to continue in our Christmas series, even though Christmas is over, or as if you're watching it here on Saturday, it's still today. Uh, but Christmas uh, is so much more than a baby Jesus in a manger. Christmas is so much more than baby Jesus in a, in a manger. And I was thinking uh, about gifts. I was looking around our house with these new gifts and the gifts that uh, have been opened and the gifts that my kids have had in the past. And I don't know about you, but uh, we've all had those gifts where we wanted them so bad for Christmas and we didn't think we could live without them. And then we, then we got them and then we played or wore them or whatever it is. And then after a few days or a few weeks, they kind of get tossed on the shelf, right? They kind of get uh, a little like uh, in the past. Well, it was 1996, and there was a Michael Jordan shoe that came out, and it was this one, the Air Jordan 11 Concord. If you know me, I'm a big shoe guy. It was 1996, I'm 14 years old, and the commercial of Michael Jordan wearing these was the greatest moment on TV, like, ever. Like, he would wear these, the camera would do a close-up on the shiny, like, patent leather, and I remember, I have to have these. I want these so bad. This is the greatest thing that's ever been made. Uh, these are the greatest shoes ever designed. And uh, I remember thinking, I just don't think I'll ever have them. Because uh, my mom was a single mom who worked uh, the night shift trying to take care of two boys. And uh, they were expensive and, and just not in the budget. Uh, but a few years later, uh, when I was a senior in high school, 
a different version of these came out. And guess what? It was my time to get them. Uh, so in Chicago, I drove about 40 miles uh, in the snow on icy roads. I uh, actually ended up in a ditch uh, filled with snow for about three hours uh, to about 2 a.m. But I did get these. I did reserve them. And I was able to wear them for a few weeks and a couple of months. But as you can imagine, the excitement slowly uh, wore off. As new shoes came out and new additions and, and other things that I wanted, the excitement of this gift to myself kind of went away. Kind of went away. And I don't know about you, but this is kind of how I am with Jesus sometimes. Just being honest with you, as a pastor, sometimes when I think about Jesus, I'm very good at celebrating the birth. I'm very good about... Uh, remembering the death and the resurrection on Easter. And I'm really good at remembering sometimes the gifts that he brings into my life and the gift of Jesus on the cross for sure. But man, sometimes I just toss it to the shelf if I'm being honest with you. If you're like me, sometimes it does not become the most important thing in my life. Sometimes it collects dust. And this morning, we're closing in Isaiah 53 with this prophecy that leads to Jesus' crucifixion. And my hope for our time together is that we see in this prophecy that the gifts that Jesus brings are so much more. That we're going to see in this prophecy that he's going to undergo certain things instead of us. Some of the details of what took place on the day of the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 prophesies in detail the events that Jesus will be going through on that day. That he wasn't just born for us, to live for us, but to end up dying for us. 53 lays out a rescue plan commissioned for us, foretold centuries before Jesus was even born. And my hope this morning is to highlight just a few, few specific and detailed circumstances that led him to the cross and the reminder of what Jesus took on himself instead of us, the suffering, the humiliation, and the pain that our Savior took, and ultimately, the death. And I know for me, I sometimes overlook the graphic and brutal details that happened on that day. What a horrific thing that would have been to see and watch on the day of the crucifixion. Pastor Andy Stanley speaking on the crucifixion, stated that God was most glorified when we would have been most horrified. God's ultimate rescue plan was the greatest gift to us. And Isaiah wraps up that rescue plan that was placed in for, uh, for you and me. So before we dive into 53, let me pray. Well, Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the fact that we get to spend time with loved ones, family, and friends, Lord, and open up gifts around the tree. But Lord, I also am so thankful for the ultimate gift that you gave us, the gift of you on the cross and resurrecting and dying for us so we can spend eternity with you, Lord. I pray that you just go before me for the next few minutes as we dive into this amazing prophecy, a prophecy that is so detailed, and yet you fulfilled every single one of them, Lord. We love you so, so much. In your name we pray, amen. So uh, before we go into 53, uh, some facts about 53, Isaiah 53, uh, it's about 600 years written before Jesus was born. I'm going to say that again. Isaiah 53 that is going to have so much specific details about the crucifixion was written 680 years, give or take, before the birth of Jesus. Uh, it is known as the Everest of Messianic prophecies. Out of all the prophecies about Jesus, about him being the Messiah, this is considered the, mess, uh, the Everest of Messianic prophecies. It is also known as the fifth gospel, uh, the root of gospel theology. Isaiah 53 is spoken 
uh, in so many books in the New Testament and by so many people. Jesus himself mentions Isaiah 53, uh, the apostles Mark, Luke, and John, and many other mentions of Isaiah 53 in the New Testament. No other Old Testament scriptures are applied as often as Isaiah 53 to the Messiah. Uh, and it actually starts in 52 at the end, going through 13 through 15. Uh, the way the chapter broke down, uh, it actually starts in 52, 13 through 15. So we'll start there. There is so much to unpack and dive into uh, that it is impossible for me to do it with you in this setting. Uh, John MacArthur did an eight-week series, an eight-week series on Isaiah 53, with one of the weeks just being an overview of 53. The depth of this passage is so deep and so wide and detailed that scholars and pastors and theologians, they spend years, if not decades, unpacking all the layers and researching and studying. So, this morning, I'm not going to do that, I can't do that, but I do hope to highlight, again, a few of these specific things that Jesus took instead of us. So we're going to start in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. You can turn with me, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. It says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human siblings, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand." So, the first thing that you see that Jesus took instead of us was being marred, being marred. We see first the Messiah, Christ, took pain and torture for us, being marred for us. The definition of marred means to impair the appearance, to impair the appearance, to disfigure, to ruin the beauty of perfection, to damage. I love that one to ruin the beauty of perfection. We know that Jesus was perfect. He was, he was God, as God would say, in, in, in human form, right, in, in an earth suit. Jesus underwent inhumane cruelty to the point that he no longer looks like a human being. His face was marred from the beatings and floggings. His appearance was so shocking and so hard to look at that people looked at him in astonishment and were appalled by his appearance. In the Gospels of Matthew and John, it states that Jesus' face was so beaten uh, and struck uh, numerous times. And just by hitting to the face with hands, right, you could have imagined the damage that it would cause. But it was worse. For hours, Jesus was struck and slapped in the face. I don't know if there's uh, any UFC fighters. I'm not a huge fan of UFC. Uh, but if you ever watch the fighters at the end of a fight, uh, if they've been in the round, even in the fight for a few, a few minutes, uh, their face uh, starts to morph into something else, right? With the swelling and the cuts and, and the blood. And, and, and if you've ever seen a fight, man, it can get very, very vicious. vicious. Pretty unimaginable. And those UFC fights, those are with gloves, some padding. Imagine a Jesus that's being struck and hit and, hit and beaten in the face with no gloves for hours, with no refs controlling the anger and the prejudice and the hatred by the people that wanted Jesus to die. Pretty unimaginable. I remember um, a few years ago when I was a spiritual life director at Hillcrest Christian School, uh, there was a moment where I opened up my office door and uh, the door hit me in the, in the forehead. Uh, I thought it was a student that kind of pushed it back, but after, uh, after all the staff found it on video surveillance and showed everyone uh, for about two weeks, uh, it's pretty obvious that I did it to myself. Uh, but the door had hit me just a little bit on the forehead. 
But what happened was, I thought I split my face open because there was so much blood from this little cut and a cut on my nose that it looked like something horrific happened. The face is very, very sensitive. We see that Jesus was marred here. But we see that it gets worse than just a slapped, being slapped and punched and beaten. See, during this time, the Romans, they were known for being the masters of death. The Romans were in charge of the arrest and, and guarding of Jesus and ultimately uh, flogging him and ultimately putting him on a cross. The Romans were known as the masters of death. They studied anatomy and they knew exactly how much a human body could endure before death. There's a reason why the Romans were so powerful. There, were, there was a reason why the Romans were able to control such a massive, massive territory on the earth. They knew how to torture and severely hurt and scar and twist and maul flesh. After the beatings, Jesus received a flogging. And I don't know if you've ever seen The Passion of Christ, but the director, Mel Gibson, wanted to so badly have the flogging seem to be as realistic as possible. During the flogging, Jesus would have been brought to, a, to an area where these masters of death, these, these massive Roman guards who knew anatomy, would take a, would take a, a thing called a cat of nine tails. And the cat of nine tails had a handle with many numerous leather strips that would come out about four or five feet long. And in those leather strips, there would be uh, pieces of glass and, and sharp uh, metal pieces and, and fragments of bone embedded in it. And the way it was designed is that you would have these massive Roman guards. They would take the cat of nine tails and with all their power and all their strength, they would whip a human body that was exposed with no padding or no clothes. And the design behind the cat of nine, uh, cat of nine tails, would, it would get embedded into flesh. And as those soldiers would pull back, it would rip out pieces of skin and flesh. And often, people who have witnessed it have seen, would have seen that sometimes organs are exposed and bones. Jesus' outward appearance wasn't the same after the flogging. It had changed. This is one of the reasons why the disciples fled. They saw this man, this Jesus, who's the king to be completely ripped apart. He was marred for us. This was a horrific sight to behold, but it would have made the resurrection so much more incredible. Moving on into verse three, it states this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah states that this servant will be despised and rejected for us. Scripture states that the Jews mocked him uh, and rejected him as the Messiah. The Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, the Messiah that had been prophesied in Isaiah, they didn't think he was the guy. They didn't think he was the guy. So much that they were given a choice from Pilate to either release Jesus or to release a murderer that was in prison by the name of Barabbas. And they rejected Jesus. What a mockery. They wanted Barabbas, a convicted murderer, for a sinless savior. It goes on further in this despised and rejected. We know that after the flogging, the Roman guards, would have, they put this crown of thorns on Jesus. And this crown of thorns would have been weaved in a way where it had these thorns about two inches in length. And it was designed to be placed on Jesus, but they also pushed it down in such a way that the thorns would have gotten into the forehead, into the scalp. Again, talking about being marred, talk about the blood that would have came down, and talk about the, the cuts that would have happened. The crown of thorns to mock him being a king and when they put him on the cross, they put a sign on the cross that said, Hail, King of the Jews. And we see that this prophecy was fulfilled in chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew. It says this, starting in verse 28, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. 
And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, again mocking him for being a king. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I love what Pastor Skip Heitzig says. He says this, no other religion has at its heart the humiliation of its God. I'm going to say that one more time. No other religion has at its heart the humiliation, the humiliation of its God, a sovereign, sinless, and suffering servant. And this is what happened to Christ, the Messiah, God sent the servant instead of us. We move on into verse 5. Of Isaiah goes on to continue, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So not only has Jesus been punched and beaten, he's been flogged, he's been tortured 39 times, he's been hit with the cat on nine tails, he's now had a, uh, a crown of, of thorns placed on his head in a way where it wouldn't fall with, with the thorns being embedded into his skin, he's been mocked, he's been despised, he's been rejected, all for us, he's now been placed on a cross and has been pierced. Humiliated, beaten, ripped to shreds, and put on a wooden cross with splinters embedding in him. And they would have taken these nails that were nine inches long. Again, the masters of death, these Roman people, they took these nails that were nine inches long and about the width of your pinky. And they took Jesus' arm, laid him out on a cross, with his feet down there. And they would have hammered with all their might these nails into the wrists and into the feet of Jesus. It was pierced for our transgressions. The Roman crucifixion was designed to be humiliating, to be humiliating for criminals. And what's fascinating about this prophecy is that the Roman crucifixion wasn't even around. The Romans weren't even in power 680 years before Jesus' birth. The scripture states that these piercings, these nailed, scarred hands will be permanent. And the fact that we will see them one day, there's an amazing story in, chapter, uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. After Jesus' resurrection, it starts this. We are introduced to uh, Thomas' new nickname, Downing Thomas. In verse 25, chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, it says this, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Thomas saying, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I would never believe. You see, Thomas was doubting. Because what he saw Jesus go through, walking with Jesus for three years, and then seeing this man get punched and beaten and slapped and flogged, and then placed on a cross and pierced for our transgressions, and the disciples are saying that, disciples are saying that he's alive, he's, he's resurrected. And Thomas is saying there's not a single man that could have lived through that. What I love is what happens in 26, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It's a beautiful moment there. I love that uh, God, Jesus, goes right where Thomas is in his faith. And what a beautiful reminder that is, that Jesus meets us where we are at. 
but we see this moment where Jesus says, okay, place your fingers here. Place it into my side where the spear came through. And we see that Thomas does it, and then his faith is restored. He knows that he's Jesus resurrected. We continue in this passage. It says that he was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities means uh, gross injustice, uh, uh, wicked acts, immoral behavior. That Jesus, the Messiah, was crushed for our iniquities. He was beaten, fogged, ripped apart, nailed to a cross for us. In verse 6, this is our part in the transaction. It says that we have gone astray, that we have turned to our own ways. Just like the Christmas gifts, right? We receive them with joy and we, we want to play with them or look at them or whatever it is you do with your Christmas gifts, right? Depending on age. And then eventually, what's next? We put them to the side and we go away from them on to the next thing. And that's us. We turn to our own selfish ways and desires. We forget what Jesus did for us. We forget the, the pain and the torture that he took upon himself for us. Continuing on in verse 7, we're going to see the next thing that he did for us. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears his is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death." although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So we see in verse 7 that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted for us. Oppressed and afflicted for us. The things that Jesus took for us continues on. It was oppressed. Oppressed means being abused by authority and power. Afflicted means mentally and physically impaired. And Jesus didn't just physically take on pain and grief, but the mental anguish as well. Even with being oppressed and afflicted, Jesus kept silent. And the prophecy here says that, that he was silent, that he was a silent sufferer. It's an interesting thought that if you're making a prophecy about your future king, your future Messiah, why would you be writing this stuff? Why would you write about a, a, a Messiah, a king, a savior that was beaten and arrested and crucified? Crucified with criminals. That doesn't make sense. We see here in the scriptures that King Herod later in the gospels questioned him many times and Jesus said nothing. We see that Pilate questioned him many times after the flogging. Jesus said not one word before headed to the cross and Pilate was astonished. And the reason is because never had Pilate seen anyone not say anything. Usually when you bring in criminals, they plead their case. They say, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. It was another person. You have the wrong guy. I'm innocent. And Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't say anything. He was silent. We see that Jesus, who was God, did not step away from the cross. When given the opportunity, didn't plead his case with Pilate. He didn't say anything, but became an innocent lamb. The ultimate sacrifice, innocent blood slaughtered on a cruel Roman cross for you and I, a perfect sacrifice. This passage goes in a little more detail with after the crucifixion, talks about the grave with the wicked, the criminal, criminal execution. The Jews in, intended Jesus to have a disgraceful burial with the thieves and criminals. So the Jews wanted him to be crucified with criminals and they wanted him to have a disgraceful burial with the criminals. But instead, Jesus was buried with the rich in an, art, in an honorable burial through the donated tomb of, wealthy, of the wealthy man Joseph of Arimathea. 
Again, this was a prophecy with details over 600 years before it took place. We see that this prophecy was actually fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 57 through 61. It says this, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. It's, again, this is in Isaiah, right? Named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. When he had cut in, uh, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So we see the prophecy in Isaiah 53 is fulfilled here in these verses. And, and kind of a side note for apologetics reasoning, uh, this passage, when you're dealing with the resurrection theories of Jesus, this passage alone, 57 through 61, gives us two things. It gives us the precise location of the tomb, we know who the, tombs, uh, who the tomb belonged to was Joseph. We know that uh, the exact location would have been known to Pilate and the Jews because they wanted to know where the body of Jesus would be. But we also see that there's eyewitnesses on site of this tomb, both Mary's, which is why they knew where to go during the resurrection. As we continue on in this last section, verse 12 in Isaiah 53 states this, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We see here in our last section that we're looking at that Jesus took our sin. He bore our sin. We see that Jesus' death paid our ransom, paid my ransom. Spiritual death is the payment for slavery to sin. But Jesus paid the ultimate and final sacrifice. Through taking the heavy weight of sin from the past and present and the future, the sacrifice was completed. Because there's a God who is holy and we're here and we're sinful, the only way that we could enter into the kingdom of heaven is by Jesus dying on the cross for you and I, Jesus was crucified between two criminals for the atonement of our sins. The Lord did not deserve this, we did. Our sin put him on the cross because payment had to be made for the sins of the world. We see this in scripture that the wages of sin is death, someone must die. Romans 5 verse 8 Paul says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, Paul, Paul, uh, Paul reminds us that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So as I close up here, my question for us right now, for you, is based on what was foretold to us in this prophecy what else needs to happen? What else needs to be completed? What else needs to be in front of you before you bend a knee to a holy, perfect God, to Jesus? Incredible, specific, detailed events predicted over 600 years before Jesus' birth. And every single one of them have been fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus with everyone being fulfilled perf uh, perfectly. The, the, this was not coincidence. This is just a bunch of coincidences. A number of years ago, Peter W. Stoner and Robert C. Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. The book was based on the science of probability and vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. It set out the odds of anyone, of any man in all of history fulfilling even only eight of the prophecies fulfilled by the life of Christ. So, so these guys, uh, they took in account all 300 prophecies, all the details and the specifics, right? And they came up with the fact that to only fulfill eight of them, eight of them, the probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight such prophecies would be only one in 10 to the 17th power. 
So uh, I don't know if you're a math person. I'm not, but 10 to the 17th power. So 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So imagine the number 10 with 17 zeros to fulfill only eight of those prophecies. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And we see that Jesus fulfilled over every single one of them. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, every one being fulfilled perfectly. And my hope as we wrap wrap up here is that we don't take Jesus' gift of a rescue plan, the rescue plan that he gave us, and we put it on the shelf. Just like these shoes, these Jordans, this gift that I got myself or the Christmas gift that you've received in the past that end up on a shelf or not looked at, collects dust, but the gift that Jesus gave us in terms of a rescue plan that it makes us realize the love of the Father. That it's the gift that makes us, it should make us walk a little taller, talk a little louder, smile a little brighter, and speak with a new boldness and confidence, knowing that we are sons and daughters to the Messiah, Jesus the Savior. Christmas is so much more than a baby in a manger. It's about a perfect king who stepped out out of heaven, down to this earth, away from his throne, to live a sinless life, to die a criminal's death for you and I, so we could be with him for eternity. What a gift, what a rescue plan he gave us. Let me pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much uh, for a chance to um, just dive a little deeper into this amazing prophecy, Lord, with a reminder of what you took on instead of us. The pain and the torture and the grief and the humiliation. The things that we deserve that you did not, but yet you took it upon yourself. But we're also reminded that it doesn't end on a cross, Lord, but it, you're resurrected. And now we can be with you for eternity when we place our hope and faith in you, Lord. We're so thankful for that, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you go before us this week, Lord, with a reminder that you're a a perfect Savior who was so desperate to have us with you, that you devised this rescue plan for us, Lord. We love you so, so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
It's been fun being with you. Uh, we hope and pray that you have a happy, happy new year, and we can't wait to see you in 2022. Be safe, and please let us know if we can be praying for you, and we love you.